This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. the relationship between art and technology? Well, I guess it depends on how you define art and technology, doesn't it? You knew I was going to do that, didn't you? My family sometimes listens to this podcast, and I can just see my sister Hannah rolling her eyes like, I mean, come on, really? But if we define technology the way I do, it's how animals rearrange the physical world to achieve their ends, including by making tools then clearly technology has been involved in art from the beginning. We might even say art is technology if we really wanted to push it. It involves brushes and paints and chisels and musical instruments and, and we could go on like that forever. And we can also look at key moments when technological developments have led to revolutions in art, whether that's the introduction of the piano and classical music or the creation of photography or film later on. By the 20th century, thinkers like Lewis Mumford and Walter Benjamin were reflecting in a serious way on how technological change was affecting the nature of art. But in the post-World War II period, visual artists started working with engineers, scientists, and technologists in whole new ways. And that's the story of Patrick McRae's recent book, Making Art Work, How Cold War Engineers and Artists Forged a New Creative Culture. In our conversation, Patrick and I talk about how this new alliance between artists and technical folks came to be and what it meant for the art and business worlds of the time. We also talk about how this longer history connects to our moment through institutions 
such as MIT's famed and controversial Media Lab. And finally, we talk about how this history leads to the so-called STEAM education of today. That's science, technology, engineering, art, and math. A movement that so often feels like a corporate top-down initiative born of the money-grubbing fever dreams of higher education administrators. I hope you enjoy this conversation. We had a lot of fun. Get excited. Patrick, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks, Lee. Glad to be here. Uh, Making Artwork is is a neat book, and we'll talk about how it kind of works in a a space that's been underexplored by folks with us. But just to start off with, when you, you know, tell strangers, uh, you know, in in these weird COVID times, maybe you don't talk to too many strangers about your book. But if you were to tell strangers about your book, uh, what would you tell them it's about and what you were trying to do with it? Yeah, so I guess the easiest thing to say is the book is about the ways in which artists and engineers in the last 50 years have collaborated together and have come together, like the title says, to make artwork. Um, And, you know, I guess sort of the key takeaway point is that at least in pre-pandemic times, we were sort of witnessing another wave of these kind of artist-engineer collaborations Uh, Whether or not that will continue or what that will look like in the years and months to come remains to be seen. But that was sort of the, you know, point of it all. Yeah. So you've written books about giant telescopes, moon watchers, uh, technologists who put forward grandiose visions of space colonies and and nanotechnologies. So what led you to turn to, to art and technology? Was it really seeing like these more recent collaborations that you mentioned and then wondering about its background, or what got you into it? I think there were probably three things. So first of all, you know, as I sort of like look at what I've done with my life in the last 20 years in terms of work, one of the themes has consistently been an interest in technological communities, communities of people that come together around specific technologies and specific projects. And, you know, we can say more about that if you want. Yeah. Um, a second part also was, you know, going all the way back to when I was a graduate student, I've had a long interest in art and museums and things like that. So this in some ways was a bit of a return or a looping back to research topics I've been interested in, you know, going back to the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you know, one of the guiding principles in book projects that I do is I try to pick something that I don't really know much about. And I use the writing of the book as a sort of a path of self-education, if you will, to Mm -hmm. try to get to learn about a new topic. And when I started this project on making artwork, um, well, gosh, when did I start that? 2012-ish. You know, I didn't really know much about art. I had a pretty naive understanding of what art and the art world was like and what artists Mm -hmm. did. And this in many ways was a chance to educate myself about a topic that I've been interested in, but didn't really know much about. Yeah, that's cool, man. I mean, I think you point out in the intro that, 
rightly that historians of science and technology, I mean, there's exceptions to, the, to what I'm about to say, but historians of yeah. science and technology have tended not to look at this art technology juncture very much. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of an underexplored area. And do you, do you have a sense of why that is? I mean, after doing all this work, you know, why do you think it's so underexplored? Um, I think a couple reasons, you know, clearly there, you know, there are, there is a small body of work that's, you know, been developed, you know, for several years that has looked at this and some of that's quite good. And I reference a lot of that in the work. Mm -hmm. um, I think part of it is, you know, if you sort of think about the histories of science and technology or STS in general, we tend to import ideas into our fields rather than export the ideas. And I think that's especially true in the history of science and technology, maybe a little bit less so in STS stuff. So, you know, as I was working on this, I was sort of interested in what were some ideas from the history of science and technology that might be of some interest or utility to art historians. Mm -hmm. I can't say that I did that with a whole lot of success, but that was sort of one of the things that I was interested in. You know, we talk a lot about laboratories and research and experiments, yeah. and we know an awful lot about that. And these are ideas that art historians use as well, but in different um, capacities. And I was interested in seeing ways in which those um, things linked up. I, I think another problem also, and it's, you know, kind of a classic longstanding problem in our fields is sort of this confusion and conflation about science and technology. And, you know, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, yeah. but, you know, as you look at sort of the historical sources about art and science and technology, that confusion about what is engineering, what is technology, what is science, those um, confusions and conflations, you know, are all the way back there in the 1960s. Yeah, they get worse as you dig down, not clearer or something like that. Um, yeah, and, and I think there's a fundamental distinction between art and science and art and technology. And there is a very you know, real reason why I focused on engineers and technology in the book rather than um, you know, places where art and science kind of connect around issues of beauty and symmetry and whatever. I wasn't really interested in that right. because, you know, fundamentally artists are like engineers in that they, you know, they design stuff, they make stuff, they work with their hands. Art like engineering is a very future looking sort of activity. I mean, when you set out to make something, whether it's a painting or a multimedia thing or whatever, you know, you're imagining what it's going to be like in the future in the same way as like someone, you know, building a bridge or designing a circuit or whatever. So I yeah. think for those reasons, the art technology nexus, at least for me, makes more sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you mentioned in passing this notion of community, which I think has been kind of a guiding concept in a, in a lot of your work, as you said. And I would say yeah. that, you know, a bit broader out, pulled out a bit. I think it's also, you know, there was other folks who you're connected with in kind of your generation or so who are also been playing with it. I think of like our late friend, Dan Johnson and Cyrus Modi and other folks um, who've often used this idea. So what, what do you find useful about the notion of community or maybe more like analytic of camp community? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've certainly had lots of conversations with Ann and Cyrus about this. And I think it was kind of one of those things where I was using it as an analytical tool without really, recognizing it as such. And I think, you know, it was talking to people like that who kind of like 
like, you know, you write about communities. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I do. You know, I never mm-hmm. really thought about it. But I think the thing that at least that works for me is it's a analytical term or a unit of analysis that has a lot of plasticity to it. It's not as rigidly defined as like a discipline or, you know, it's certainly larger than a laboratory group or a um, academic department. Mm. It's nowhere near as sprawling, however, as like a professional society or whatever. And communities come together around instruments and projects and, mm-hmm. um, you know, specific maybe technological goals, if you will. And they form and they coalesce and maybe they remain together and develop into something that's a little more codified or maybe they dissolve and dissipate over time. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of that quasi ephemerality of the community that I like a lot. Mm -hmm. And also it it kind of opens itself up. I mean, community sounds more friendly than discipline. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it sort of allows for like, you know, students and journalists and popular writers to also kind of be part of that community. And in the book, making artwork, Um, you know, that was certainly part of the story. I mean, you have your artists and engineers, but you've also got curators and you have journalists who are writing about this confluence of art and technology and all of them together constitute this community of people, which at least in this first wave that I write about in the book, you know, existed for about a decade or so and then faded away. Mm -hmm. Um, you, in the introduction, you, you describe, older movements around art and technology or that described them like futurism and, you know, things that go back to the earlier 20th century. But as your title says, your, your story is really one about the Cold War and, and this period of collaboration between engineers and, and artists. So why did you choose to focus on that period? And, and why, you know, what do you think has made it different than the things that came before? Yeah, so the three sort of earlier 20th century movements that I referenced would be the Italian futurists, the Bauhaus in Germany, and the Russian constructivists. And I think the thing that makes this Cold War coming together of artists and engineers different um, is a couple of things. I mean, first of all, there was a lot of media spectacle attached to it. So in some ways, it kind of parallels a lot of the big science projects that you know we know about of the 50s and 60s and onward. Um, you know, sort of being a vulgar materialist, you know, I'm always very interested in who pays for this kind of stuff and the funding structure for supporting artists and engineers in this period of time in the sixties, early seventies was changing. There were a lot of, Mm -hmm. uh, top shelf corporations that were putting a lot of money into it, or at the very least allowing their engineers to partner with artists and the, parallels between the art community and the engineering community in the 1960s are very striking. And maybe we can say something about that later on, but it was kind of that coming together of like scale and funding and media attention that was really different from say what you would have with regard to those earlier movements Mm -hmm. of the early 20th century um, that, that I referenced. And I think also you know, you had the Italian futurists who were very much, you know, enamored with technology and the yeah. violence and the spectacle of it. But, you know, they, they wrote manifestos and they yeah. made artwork. They didn't really bring engineers together to collaborate um, in, in any sort of meaningful way, whereas that very much was the focus of the, um, the communities and the activities that I ended up writing about. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, your story launches, and I, I just realized that's an unintentional and terrible pun, uh, with the story, the story of American-born rocket engineer Frank Molina. So who was Molina, and why did you find him a kind of useful road to get into the story you wanted to tell? Yeah, so I mean, I knew about Molina, of course, you know, because of earlier interests and stuff I'd written about, about space exploration and stuff like that. And, you know, Molina's a really fascinating character in the sense that he's, um, you know, he's born in the United States. His family's Czechoslovakian. He grows up in rural Texas and he finally makes his way to Pasadena in the 1930s for graduate school at Caltech. And he has as his mentor, the great aeronautical engineer, Theodore von Karman. And when he's at Caltech, he gets very much caught up in this idea of the science and engineering of rocketry, which in the 1930s would have been considered a very poor career move. You know, the depression was on. It would have been made much more sense for him just to get his degree from Caltech and go work in the, you know, the aviation industry. Um, you know, but he gets involved with rocketry, but he also gets involved with uh, socialism and um, arguably a member of the Communist Party in the 1930s, which in the 1930s wasn't that crazy or radical of an idea. But in the 1950s, when it comes back to bite him, it you know, is seen in a much different sort of way. Yeah. During World War II, he is very much involved with a rocketry program at Caltech to help build weapons for the U.S. military. Um, after the Second World War ends, he visits the Trinity site in New Mexico. So he sees firsthand, you know, what sort of destruction happens, you know, with nuclear weapons. And then during the war, he's also based in London. So he also sees the effect of German rockets on the civilian population in British cities. And, you know, he understands eventually that rockets will become better and more powerful and able to fly longer distances. And then eventually they will be mated with nuclear weapons. And he sees that future and he doesn't want any part of it. So he joins UNESCO, um, which is based in Paris after the Second World War and really wants to find ways to apply science to the you know, betterment of global society. You know, UNESCO is arguably a fairly left-wing sort of organization, so its relationship with the United States was always dicey. By this point, Molina is under pretty heavy FBI surveillance because of his, um, first of all, because of his rocketry knowledge, and second of all, because of his communist past. And eventually, um, in the early 50s, his passport is not renewed, and he's basically marooned in Paris around the same time that he decides to quit his job at UNESCO and become a professional artist. The, you know, the, the part, I guess, that I found just, you know, the lovely ironic twist was during the Second World War, he helped start a company, which is still very active today, called Aerojet. And Aerojet today makes uh, solid rocket boosters, which go into all sorts of missiles and rockets and stuff like that. But Molina holds on to his Aerojet stock, which after Second World War, you know, goes skyward. And <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden he finds himself like really wealthy as yeah. a result of helping start a company, which is helping make rocket engines to eventually build ICBM. So there's all sorts of yeah. just crazy, you know, ironies and contradictions and stuff there. But the end result is he is able to afford to quit his job and become a professional artist, but he's marooned in Paris for several years because of his, issues with his passport and the fact that the State Department won't reissue it. So he's mm -hmm. really stuck there to become an artist. And he, you see, one of the reasons you focus on him is because he's kind of bringing in engineering knowledge to his artwork, right? So 
Um, you know, I should tell listeners that there are some wonderful images in the book um, that they should check out. And maybe we should say if, you know, we should probably talk about a piece of his or two that people can check out online if they're um, interested in it, in learning more. But why don't you say a bit about how he brings engineering knowledge to kind of bear in, in pieces? Yeah, he does it in two ways. One of them is um, he really, you know, he makes this statement that, you know, in Paris, when he's becoming a self-taught professional artist, he's going around to all the galleries and he gets sick of seeing all of the, all of the still lifes and all the kinds of, you know, as he says, dead fish, flowers and nudes. You know, he's just sick of seeing like the standard stuff that's sort of like, you know, the French painters of that era were, were doing. So he really is wondering, like, why aren't people painting and capturing images from science and engineering and things like that. So a lot of his artworks are science themed or engineering yeah. themed. So there's that part of it, but he's also very much into experimentation and he wants to do something new as an artist, um, which I think sort of reflects his engineering background. I mean, part of the expression yeah. that he wants to become an innovator. He doesn't want to just make paintings, but he wants to experiment and find new ways of, of making artwork. So, you know, he experiments with wire mesh and putting lights behind wire mesh and whatever. And he finally latches on to this sort of combination of, you know, of, of, of you know, sort of electrokinetic painting. So, you know, sort of imagine, you know, he has these small electric motors that he attaches to plastic discs that are painted, that rotate, that have lights behind them. They kind of create this, you know, very peaceful, contemplative sense of like light and color, um, but it's electrified. I mean, these are electric motors with lights and then traditional painting. So, you know, these are artworks that he begins to make, first of all, at a fairly small scale. But by the time he's kind of wrapping up his career as a painter in the mid 1960s, he's making works that are like six feet by 10 feet in size and weigh several hundred pounds and, you know, cost a fair amount of money to make. So, you know, those are kind of like two ways that his engineering background really, uh, really comes to play, I think. In one of your discuss discussions of Molina, um, you talk about a conversation you were having with someone from the art world. I think it was a museum world. Yeah. And the, this person asked you if Molina was an important artist. And I thought this was just a wonderful kind of conversation about like different scholarly communities, because you say there what, what this person meant after you talk to more people of this sort was it was he any good so i just thought i mean like what is how do you see your you know i don't know how do you understand things differently as a kind of historian approaching these things than maybe like someone from the art world looking at these works too? yeah i mean this, this was a good part of my you know the the education process that i went through in doing this project was understanding that the ways in which our community evaluates things and the way the art history community thinks about things are, are really quite different. Yeah, this conversation was, you know, with someone at a you know, museum in Washington, D.C., and we were just, you know, I was talking about Molina's art and, you know, they had never heard of him. And that was the question they asked was, you know, was he any was he any good? And I think they were a little bit surprised, you know, like, first of all, like, well, you know, he was a professional artist in the sense that you know, he made artworks and he sold them. I mean, and he exhibited them in galleries, um, including mm. major shows in New York City and Washington, D.C., and certainly lots of shows in Europe. Um, you know, he had solo shows. He was included in some really, you know, high profile um, art, um, art shows in the, in the 50s and 60s. 
But, you know, the whole thing, I guess, for me was kind of interesting is, you know, you wouldn't really, if you were talking to a historian of science and you say, oh, I'm, I'm writing a uh, history of, you know, Lee Vinsel, the scientist from the 19th century. And they'd be like, oh, you know, was he an important scientist? You know, like, did he do anything important? Like, that really wouldn't be like the first question we would go to. Yeah. We would just say like, well, this person was a scientist and like that would be at full stop. And, you know, this kind of led me, and this is something I was really clear about in the introduction, was that I had no, I have no interest in adjudicating whether these works of art that these people made are good or not. That's not yeah. really the point in the yeah. sense that I wouldn't, as a historian of science, say like, well, this was a good experiment or a bad experiment yeah. in terms of judging it. I mean, we might evaluate it on different criteria, but that would not be like our go-to place to think about so I just kind of worked with the sense of these were professional artists who were making artworks that were exhibited and displayed and written about in professional art magazines. And if people want to evaluate them in terms of their value in the art world or their aesthetic value or whatever, that's fine. But that wasn't really something I was interested in doing, nor is it something like intellectually or professionally I'm equipped to do. I mean, I'm not someone who's a specialist in aesthetics or whatever. I mean, I know yeah. what I like and I think I have some sense of good art versus bad art maybe, but you know, that's, that's not my day job. Yeah. In a book like this, I think it would be odd if um, CP Snow's idea of like the two cultures didn't come up, but I really liked your treatment. I, I felt like it, this is the first time in a long time I read, read something about it and it felt kind of fresh and new and, and worth, uh, reading so thank you for for doing that but I, I was wondering if you could just for for listeners who might not know about this idea whether you could just kind of introduce this this notion and and talk about how you saw it playing out in the the story yeah. you were writing yeah I mean, it was important to the story in a couple of ways like, like like you say it would be almost impossible to write this book without referencing it in some way and i wanted to do something a little bit different with it compared to how you know, how it's usually brought up, you know, so C.P. Snow is this British chemist who eventually becomes a novelist and becomes sort of a statesman or technocrat of British uh, post-war science policy and, you know, eventually becomes uh, Lord Snow and Sir, you know, he, you know he, he gets his peerage and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, his, his main thing is in 1959, he gives a speech in Cambridge you know, about the two cultures, which he basically describes as this divide between literary intellectuals or literary humanists and the scientific community. And it's basically, you know, it's it's largely a critique, if you will, of like the Brit British class system at the time, and also his sense that the people who were running Britain's foreign policy, etc., were not really like au courant with what was actually happening in like the science and the world of science and engineering. And he felt mm -hmm. that this was like a, a real problem, like potentially a threat to British national security. The crazy thing is, and this is something I was a little bit surprised that nobody had really picked up on before, is that as you actually read the two cultures, which maybe not everyone actually does, <laughs> um, you find that later on in the book, he's actually critical of both these literary intellectuals yeah. and scientists for being ignorant of technology. And if anything, he is critical of both of those communities for sort of denigrating the world of applied science and engineering. Yeah. So 
you know, a deeper reading of C.P. Snow has him being very much in favor of, you know, what we would call applied science or, or, or engineering or what have you. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, the book is, a, you know, the lecture becomes a book. The book becomes a huge sensation. It's a bestseller. You know, it appears on syllabi of, you know, college campuses all throughout the Western world. But as the idea of the two cultures migrates from Great Britain to the United States, it takes on a different cast because it's no longer caught up in this world of like British class yeah. differences and people educated at Oxbridge versus the Red Brick universities and all that other sort of stuff. And it becomes a very convenient tool in the United States for people who are trying to reform, say, for example, engineering education. They could point to this problem of the two cultures yeah. and how do we bring the arts and humanities into engineering so you're producing uh, more well-rounded engineering students. So it kind of becomes this um, shorthand, if you will, all throughout the 1960s where you could just say, and I'm going to put the scare quotes up here for people who can't see, the two cultures, and people would sort of know what you were talking about without having to like go through this long explication that I, that I just went through. But mm-hmm. it becomes like a very valuable rhetorical tool, both for artists who want to work with engineers and corporate managers who are trying to broker these partnerships and university administrators. I mean, you start to see, no surprise, you know, popping up in like commencement addresses and stuff like that. (laughs) You know, it just becomes like this very like handy phrase that, you know, summarizes and diagnoses all of these like ills with the American university system without having to like really unpack it. Mm -hmm. Um. Another artist that you talk about is uh, Billy Kluver. So I was hoping you could you could say a bit about um, him, but also I was hoping you could say a bit about his position at Bell Labs and how this kind of brings in a different dynamic than we've talked about with Molina so far. Yeah, so one of the other main characters in the book is a... Um... Uh, an electrical engineer uh, named Billy Kluver. Um, he was born in Sweden, and he grew up, um, th- you know, there as a teenager during during the Second World War and you know, during the war, and then shortly after, he becomes really enamored with like Swedish avant-garde film and what have you. At the same time, that he's a physics um, undergrad student um, at university in Stockholm. And you know, he is kind of like a classic embodiment of someone who is you know, really into science and engineering, but is also really caught up in modern art and experimental film. Um, he leaves Sweden, I think, in 1954. He goes to UC Berkeley to get his PhD in electrical engineering, which he does, and I think he graduates in 1958. And, you know, he, he continues his interest in, um, you know, modernist fiction and art and film and all that while he's a student at Berkeley, you know, mm-hmm. he, you know, audits, uh, philosophy classes and stuff like that. Um, but then after he graduates in 58, you know, because he's a, um, you know, electrical engineer with a PhD from an elite school. And this was a period of time where electrical engineers and engineers in general could pretty much write their own ticket if they were competent. You know, he has a whole choice of jobs open up to him. I mean, he's offered a position at the Stanford Research Institute. He's offered a job at RCA. But eventually he accepts a position at Bell Laboratories, which in the late 1950s was arguably the world's best corporate research and development laboratory. I mean, it's a little bit like 
you know, graduating from the minor leagues and getting like recruited and getting a job with the you know, the, the uh, New York Yankees at the time. I mean, this was like the place to be. You know, so Kluver ends up in uh, New Jersey, and he his specialty is laser physics. So you know, he you know has his whole physics research, electrical engineering research program at Bell Labs. He is working in an environment that is extremely supportive and paternalistic in the best possible sense of basically just allowing researchers to do what they want. And, you know, as long as there's some sort of, you know, corporate tie-in, you know, to the Bell Labs mission. Um, And, you know, Kluver remains interested in avant-garde art and where he's living in Northern New Jersey, of course, you know, he's working his day job at Bell Labs in Murray Hill, but he's spending his nights and his weekends in Manhattan and Greenwich Village and whatever, hanging out with artists and, um, actually helping uh, curate some art shows, you know, hanging out with artists in their lofts and studios and galleries and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, he really becomes this important person who um, works to formally bring together these communities of artists and engineers mm-hmm. um, starting, you know, as early as the you know early 1960s. So just, like you just said that he's kind of this interesting network connector between these kind of two worlds. And I was hoping we could talk a bit about about each of those worlds. So, you know, what for, you know, the leaders at companies like Bell Labs and other kind of corporations that get involved in this stuff, what is what is attractive to them about this? Like why why would they get involved in these kinds of initiatives? I think there are a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, you know, it was <laughs> they were flush with money. I mean, they yeah. could afford to do it. Um you know, this was a time of great American prosperity, even great Western prosperity, which, you know, arguably helped foster some of these art and technology collaborations overseas as well. So you have companies like um, Bell Telephone, you know, just making money hand over fist, companies yeah. like IBM, um, all of the various aerospace and defense and avionics companies, you know, they can afford to do this sort of stuff, coupled with the fact that I don't want to say there was a shortage of engineers but there definitely was a competitive aspect to recruiting engineers and keeping them on your workforce and keeping them happy. And, yeah. you know, the IBM would do this by basically, you know, creating a you know country club essentially for its engineers to golf and spend their weekends or whatever. I mean, there were, there were these attempts by companies to make it as comfortable as possible for their employees so they wouldn't pull up stakes and go somewhere else. And then you'd have to like retrain somebody all over again. And Bell Labs certainly fit that category. So this was in in some ways part of, you know, keeping your engineers happy, allowing them to do what they want to do. But I think there was also a sense that, you know, you never really got it. You you know, there's a lot of, um, I don't want to say confusion, but maybe a lot of like unknown about like, what led to successful commercial innovation, what led yeah. to creativity. And I think of this idea that if you allow engineers to play in the sandbox with artists, they may pick up ideas that they could then bring back to their day job and might, you know, provide the seeds for some new commercial product, mm-hmm. or maybe would just help stir their creativity in ways that would be beneficial um, to the company's bottom line. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there were a number of reasons why, Corporate managers did that. And also, I mean, it looked good. I mean, if you're a company whose yeah. job is, you know, whose commercial product is missiles, well, you know, maybe right. having like some art projects is kind of a way of, um, you know, art washing some of the stuff that, um, you know, that your corporation is doing. Yeah. And it also, I mean, maybe 
they liked having access to these social worlds. I mean, I remember you saying someone, one of the people you talked to was saying like, well, they had access to, you know, girlfriends basically. Right. Or, um, there were pretty girls in the art world. Yeah, was I mean, like, you know, yeah. Right. I mean, very so, I mean, sexist you know, way of putting it, we, but still. It's, it sounds sexist to us today, but I, I think that reflected the social reality of the 1960s yeah. was that the world of the engineer in the 1960s was a very white masculine world. And most engineers didn't work with women. I mean, they had them around, you know, as administrative assistants and lab technicians and what have you. But, you know, it was a very masculine sort of world. And this idea of partnering with artists definitely opened up um, social networks that these engineers otherwise probably wouldn't have had such easy access to. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't, I, you know, it's it's not like they were just doing it in the hope of like, you know, meeting girl, meeting potential girlfriends. But I think yeah. that at least according to some of the people I spoke to, you know, was, was not like, you know, was a, not a bad side benefit, if you right, will, right, right. Um, of this. And, you know, some long-term relationships did come out of this. Some people did get married and, you know, yeah. so that happened. Um, you know, on the flip side, the artists who end up getting involved with these guys are not, I mean, they're not nobodies, right? I mean, it include Robert Rauschenberg and John Cage and a, a number of other big names. So how did Kluver and his kind of his gang form those connections? Was that just a natural part of them being, you know, hanging out yeah. in Manhattan or, you know, what's the story there? I think partly for Kluver, at least it's, you know, kind of what I call the Swedish connection. So when he's in Stockholm, you know, it's a fairly small community and the people that he meets, even as he's a teenager or a college student, you know, he meets Pontus Holton, who becomes a director of the Modern Art Museum in Stockholm. He meets some Swedish artists, um, you know, like Klaus Oldenburg and Oyvind Falström, you know, who go on to become, you know, big names in the 60s and 70s, you know, art world. So, he, you know, he's able to sort of play on those Swedish connections and, you know, it's in part through those links, you know, he's also at Bell Laboratories, which is an elite organization. Yeah. So that that helps a little bit. And, you know, very quickly, he begins to have these one on one partnerships with people like Rauschenberg and John Cage and Yvonne Rayner and Andy Warhol. And then what he decides to do is he wants to expand on this. So it's not just these one on one sorts of things, but he wants to scale it up so it becomes more of a networking thing that would bring, you know, have hundreds of artists on tap to partner them with hundreds of engineers to sort of create a much larger sort of um, endeavor. And that, of course, becomes the basis of the organization that he co-founds in 1966 called Experiments in Art and Technology. But it really starts from these one-on-one -on -one, um, interactions of working with people like Rauschenberg, mm -hmm. um, you know, who he was very close to. And, um, you know, working with them to help them realize whatever particular aesthetic vision that they had, but also contributing to that vision. Again, not just being a person with a screwdriver, you know, yeah. who knows how to wire something, but actually contributing to it in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. So I was going to ask you about experiments in, in art and technology or EAT. I mean, I think this is a, this group's very famous in some circles of people who care a, about this history. Uh, probably less well known to the general public, but how do you how did you understand like in the overarching story that you're telling like what is the significance of eat is it about a for kind of formalization of these communities or you know how do you how do you see that? 
Okay, so first of all, it's always EAT. They never go with E. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Well, uh, there you go. I'm showing no, my no, ignorance. No, <laughs> I mean, it's natural. You know, it's always uh, EAT. Um, so EAT you know, was, was co-founded in the fall of 66 with uh, Billy Kluver and his co-fellow uh, co engineer at Bell Labs, uh, Fred Waldhauer. But they co-founded it with Robert Rauschenberg and Bob Whitman, who were two avant-garde artists at the time. And basically, EAT was this New York-based nonprofit, the goal of which was to bring artists and engineers together. So sort of serve as like a matchmaking service, if you will, but also to provide seminars and information to artists who might want to experiment with, you know, electrical circuits and microprocessors and computers and lasers and all sorts of other sorts of media that to us today don't seem that sophisticated yeah. but to the night in the in the mid 1960s would have been very daunting for an artist to have access to or to figure out how to use and Kluver and company CEAT as this sort of brokerage or brokering service if you will to connect up these two different communities and it was pretty successful at doing that. It lasted for about five or six years, and then it kind of fades away for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. But you know, at its heyday, it probably had um, about three or four thousand members. Um, yeah. you know, it was based in New York City, but there were some local chapters, especially in Los Angeles, huh. yeah. um, had a very active local chapter as well. So you know, in that sense, it was it was pretty successful. And Kluver was really clear about it in the sense that. You know, he stated several times that he didn't expect EAT to stay around forever. He's like, you know, it was basically to be a, a temporary organization to foster this dialogue between artists and engineers. And eventually that mission would get taken up by companies and universities and whatever. This was sort of a stopgap or a seed, if you will, around which these other um, you know, collaborative partnerships might eventually form is what, what, what he was hoping for. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Sax.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Um, I see the formation in, in the book. I see that the formation of EAT as like one beat. And there's a couple other um, that, that I want to look at with you. So in 68, Molina again uh, comes back in and, you know, he founds, uh, co-founds, he, he helps create this journal Leonardo, which he then edits until his death in, in 1981. So kind of like EAT, I mean, how do you, mm -hmm. how do you see, what is the significance of Leonardo, a journal that, that continues to this yeah. day? So in 1968, Molina founds this journal, Leonardo, and it's supposed to be a journal and it's still published today. I mean, it's still published by uh, MIT Press. Right. Um, so it just celebrated its 50th anniversary. Um, 
Molina was frustrated with a couple things. So first of all, he, in his own experiments with electricity and light and making these sort of electrokinetic paintings, he realizes that there were other artists who had done similar things before mm. him, but there was no way of documenting this, which, you know, to a research engineer, this was anathema. I mean, there right. should be like some sort of like credit and like, you know, priority for discovery and whatever. When he finds out that other people have done this, he's a little bit, a little appalled and a little, yeah. I think, concerned that maybe he is like, um, I don't want to say plagiarizing, but like copying what other artists have done because there's no like way of establishing priority. And second of all, he's really, so, so first of all, let's be clear, Molina really does not like art critics. I mean, he's very hostile <laughs> yeah. to the jar jargon laden, you know, to people who write about art, but who aren't making the art. Yeah. He doesn't understand like why artists aren't using their own voices to write about their own experiments, mm -hmm. why they're relying on the mouthpiece of the critic to say like, you know, to use you, to use you as an example, Lee, well, you know, Lee made this artwork, but Lee's not going to describe it. He's going to depend mm. or wait until an art critic interprets it for the public. Yeah. And he's like, you know, no scientist ever does that. You know, a scientist does an experiment and they write up the results of the experiment themselves and they publish it. And that's how they communicate their knowledge and what they're doing. But it's also how they get like credit and priority for whatever discovery that they've made. So he sees Leonardo as basically a journal for artists that's modeled on scientific journals is kind of originally how he's imagining it. Mm -hmm. And unlike other art journals at the time, it has no advertisements. So there are no advertisements for galleries or shows or whatever, because he sort of saw that as like a corrupting influence of, yeah. you know, if you're an artist, you know, your gallery promotes you as an artist. And, you know, again, coming from the world of a scientist or an engineer that just kind of rubbed him the wrong way. I mean, he, basically is sort of hostile to what we can call like the museum gallery industrial complex, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Leonardo, you know, it starts in 68, you know, like all journals, it, you know, slowly acquires, you know, a circulation and a readership and what have you. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very much a way for Molina to bring these worlds of the artist, the scientist and the engineer together without sort of the critic as a mediating sort of person, if you will. Um, yeah. And again, you know, I think it's clear, you know, some of the articles in the early issues of Leonardo are interesting. Some appear as filler because as an editor, you know, he was trying yeah. to like get articles in there. But, you know, in that five decades since the journal has been published, you know, it has kind of become like one of the central journals, if you will, for people who are writing about this nexus, if you will, of art and science and, and technology. Mm -hmm. um, and like you say, Molina is the editor in chief of the journal until 81 when he, um, he passes away in Paris. And it's also important, I guess, to point out that the journal is based in Paris. And of course, by this point, the center of the art world is no longer Paris. It had you know, migrated long ago to New York city, but Molina is still based there. And as a result, the journal is exceptionally international. So it's huh. not just a, yeah. you know, it's, it's published initially by a British press. It's not solely for the American community. Most of the authors are European. Um, he includes many Asian artists. He's very keen to get artists and other writers from behind the Iron Curtain involved. So he really imagines it as 
like a scientific journal, something that would be exceptionally international and broad looking in its focus. Mm -hmm. So the third beat I wanted to cover you with you is the, the Pepsi Pavilion um, at Expo 70 mm -hmm. in Osaka, Japan, which is another kind of, for some worlds, very famous thing. And I, I encourage mm -hmm. uh, listeners to, to check it out online because there's pretty good photos of it there. Um, so and, and importantly, I think, you know, it, not only is this kind of a, a moment, a famous moment in the story of art and technology, but it also involves EAT. So why don't you talk about a bit about, you know, how it came to be, what it is, how it came to be, and, you know, what significance you think it has for the history? Sure. Um, so Expo 70 was in Osaka, Japan in 1970. It was the first World's Fair held in an Asian country. And for the Japanese coming after World War II, this was an exceptionally important thing for them. This was a chance to showcase the progress Japan had made, both socially and economically and technologically. This was to sort of be Japan's sort of international coming out moment, if you will. Um, Pepsi was one of the few American companies that was given um, its own particular or own specific pavilion um, at the expo. Um, like many world's fairs, there were lots of national pavilions. So the United States had a pavilion, the Soviet Union had one and so forth. But there were not many American companies that had their own pavilions. And Pepsi was one of them. Pepsi also had the soft drink concessions for the expo. And Pepsi at this, <laughs> yeah. at this time, you know, was the world's, um, you know, second biggest uh, soft drink purveyor, you know, compared to that other company that makes uh, sugared water. Yes. And Pepsi wanted to, you know, enlarge its uh, customer base in, in the Asian markets. Um, so in 1968, Pepsi executives are looking for a novel approach for their pavilion. Um, they talked to a number of different uh, uh, collectives, if you will, of, you know, artists and technologists, but eventually they decide to partner with EAT. And for EAT, this, of course, is going to be a, you know, huge project. I mean, before they've been working on these sort of smaller scale um, artist engineer collaborations, some small exhibitions and what have you. But this was really going to like take it up a notch. Um, the initial budget that Pepsi gives EAT is about $800,000, which in today's money, uh, I can't do the conversion off the top of my head, but this is like several million dollars. So mm -hmm. in some ways, and this is, I guess, why it was attractive to me is the Pepsi pavilion is sort of like the art world's version of big science. This is big art. Yeah. You know, this right. is going to be lots of money, lots of media spectacle, lots of like cold war defense related technologies brought in in the service of, of artwork. Um, so, you know, in some ways it's kind of like the art world's version of like a rocket launch, if you will. <laughs> yeah. um, EHC, you know, works on this eventually literally scores of artists, engineers, technologists, architects, a whole assemblage of people are required to pull this off. It's also fair to say that it is above EAT's organizational capabilities. I mean, this, yeah. You know, EAT at this point is a small organization with about seven staff members. Mm. This is a huge project. I mean, this yeah. is just insanely large for them. And it's in another country. Right. And that is like, you know, EAT is based in New York. They're basically contract or, or managing this project that is unfolding in Japan, you know, which is many, many time zones away. 
So the archives of this project, which are at the uh, Getty Research Institute in Los Angeles, I mean, you know, if you're podcast listeners, I'm making like a uh, visual of like how many like thousands of pages of documents <laughs> there are of like yeah. contracts and orders and telexes back and forth as they're trying to like manage this thing, which is clearly beyond what they're capable of doing mm -hmm. at this point. And the crazy thing is Pepsi, because they're like, rotating through vice presidents so rapidly at this point, no one at Pepsi is monitoring this. So the crazy thing is there's like no actual formal contract yeah. until like the project is almost over that like Pepsi like signs with EAT. And by this point, it's several hundred thousand dollars over budget. You One know, another parallel to big yes. science projects. <laughs> um, yeah. But it, it successfully opens in March of 1970. And you know, it's a fascinating thing. I would encourage uh, listeners to look at images of it online, just, you know, Pepsi Pavilion, Osaka, 1970. But, you know, yeah. from an art technology standpoint, it's pretty fascinating in terms of what EAT was able to do. But at the same time, the Pepsi executives that are paying for it just don't get it. I mean, they don't understand <laughs> yeah. why, like, why their logo is on display. Or right. like why they're not selling soft drinks or whatever. But I mean, EAT was really focused on basically like a choose your own adventure in the pavilion. So unlike, unlike the American pavilion where you sort of go through and you're kind of marched through all the different exhibits and then you just sort of emerge on the other side. Mm -hmm. The whole idea with the Pepsi pavilion was that you would go inside and just, you know, experience it. Just yeah. see what you wanted to see. Stay in there as long as you wanted to. If you wanted to stay in one room where there's like, a, you know, like laser light displays, or if you wanted to be in the main room, which is this huge hemispherical uh, mirror room that creates all sorts of interesting visual and um, auditory yeah. illusions, you know, it really was a place for people to just have their own aesthetic experience, right. which, you know, EAT was really keen on promoting, but really had a hard time convincing the Pepsi executives who very soon after it opens, just basically shut it down and take it away from, uh, from EAT and huh. um, sort of install their own version of, um, of how they want it to be. So this openness and, you know, focus on individual experience and autonomy on the part of the, the viewer is very much a part of this moment of the like 60s, 70s uh, vibe. But at the same time, you know, during the 60s and 70s, this is a uh, moment where the left and artists are intensely critical of corporations and, and that whole world. So, like, how often did that become a kind of tension in these in these art and technology worlds between kind of the people willing to play along with corporations and then maybe critics who are, I don't know, poking them or throwing things at them or whatever? Yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of you know, there's a wide range of opinion on that. And one of the major critiques that was leveled against some of these artist engineer collaborations was that they were apolitical, that they were not coming out with mm -hmm. a strong political statement about civil rights or Vietnam or what have you. Yeah. But that having been said, there certainly were artists who partner with engineers who did produce artworks um, that did make a political statement. Mm. So like Carolee Schneeman's piece in 1967, I think, called Snows, uh, you know, it was very much an anti-Vietnam War piece. 
Uh, there were people like Hans Hacke and other um, artists who were connected with art and technology who also made um, works that very much had uh, statements about corporate power, the military industrial complex and what have you. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, a lot of the artists were not uncomfortable with working with a large corporation, accepting their patronage or what have you. And one of the points, I think it's in one of the later chapters of the book, there's an art critic named Jack Burnham who puts on a show in 1970 at the Jewish Museum in New York called Software. And some of the artists that he brings into the show pull out once they realize that the major patron for the show is the American Motors Corporation. And they're like, whoa, no, we're not taking money from a car maker. Yeah. And Burnham's like, okay, but you'll take money from like the Guggenheim Foundation, which made its money through rapacious mining activities in the 19th century. Right. But that was like long <laughs> ago. That, like that doesn't yeah. bother you. Yeah. Like. You know, but you don't you don't want to take money from a car maker because that's like right here in your face. But like the Guggenheim, that's OK. Yep. And, you know, this is you know, this is an art critic and an art curator who's really chastising his artists for basically being hypocrites, if they will, about, yep. you know, where they where they want to get their money from. And also like routinely complaining that, they're, they, that they don't have enough money to start with. Yeah. He's like, well, you know, there is money out there. You just need to be willing to, you know work with these entities and take take their support. So your story goes in in well, lots of different threads come out, goes in lots of different directions. Um, and one of the places that it leads to is the creation of um, the perhaps now infamous MIT Media Lab. And I wondered how you think about the Media Lab in this story, because on the one hand, it like it very much feels like a part of, you know, this focus on art and technology is very much a part of its, you know, organizational DNA. I'm putting that in quotation marks. Um, on the other mm -hmm. hand, like it becomes a kind of, you know, their main, a, a lot of their main business is kind of like corporate services, consulting, you know, helping firms make gadgets and, and other kinds of things like that. So I just, yeah, I just wonder how you, how you think it fits in, in the story. Like how is it different and how is it, you know, a part of this thing? Yeah. Writing about the Media Lab, first of all, as a historian, was very difficult because yep. it's an exceptionally poorly documented organization mm. relative to other organizations at MIT. I mean, I thought that there would actually be a collection of documents at MIT about yeah. the Media Lab, that, that there would be like a collection I could mine. And, and there isn't. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure why there is. I've got my speculations a little bit. Um, but, you know, unlike... You know, unlike uh, some of the other laboratories yeah. and organizations that we know of at MIT, um, it has not done a very good job of preserving its own history. Mm -hmm. The history of the Media Lab, though, is pretty fascinating. I mean, what I was able to cobble together from a whole array of different archival sources is pretty fascinating. So before the Media Lab at MIT, there was something called the Center for Advanced Visual Studies, which still exists today. And it was started by a uh, Hungarian-born artist named Georgi Kepesh. Kepesh starts the Center for Advanced Visual Studies in 67. It's formally dedicated in 1968. And it never really finds a comfortable space within MIT. But Kepesh's vision was that it would be a place for artists to interact with MIT scientists and engineers, and it would help educate MIT students about the visual arts. I mean, it would literally 
help MIT students bridge the two cultures, if you will, by learning not just to appreciate visual arts, but by learning how to see, like how to like train their eyes to see like better. Yep. So Kepish has this whole thing. Um, He retires. He's replaced by another artist uh, named Otto Pina. Um, But at the same time, one of the other people who's very active at MIT at this time is the architecture professor who later goes on to become the first director of the Media Lab, Nicholas Negroponte. Negroponte and Kepish and Pina could not be like further apart on the social spectrum. I mean, Negroponte's brother is like deeply connected to the American national security establishment. Hmm. Negroponte comes from a wealthy, you know, wealthy Greek family. You know, I mean, just again, Google a picture of him and he is always dressed in a very dapper suit and tie kind of thing. And he wants to create this new center at MIT that would um, explore and experiment with computing technologies and new media technologies. And this becomes the Media Laboratory, which is finally dedicated in 1985 after Negroponte and Jerome Wiesner, a former MIT president, you know, do a multi-year fundraising campaign. And they're exceptionally good at raising money from Japanese corporations like Sony Mm-hmm. And Hitachi, you know, which at the time, you know, like Bell Labs in the 60s, these companies in the early 80s are just flush with money. Yep. They want to be affiliated with MIT. They want to have a, you know, front row seat as to what new media technologies might be coming out of this. So they give millions of dollars, as do film studios in Southern California and what have you. Um, the Media Lab is dedicated. It gets this brand new fancy building. But one of the crazy things, of course, you know, being an academic, it's always fascinating to see like the behind the scenes backstabbing that is going on as <laughs> Negroponte is very good at like shiving his former colleagues at the Center for Advanced Visual Studies as he's getting the money to create this new building. And of course, as we all know, you know, real estate is, you know, the main thing that academic administrators care about. Yeah. So the fact that he's able to get this new building um, you know, designed by IMP, you know, this is a big deal. So there's the media lab of the early 1980s, which, you know, Stuart Brand writes a best-selling book about. It's all about like how the media lab is inventing the future and yeah. what have you. And as I write about in the book, it kind of reflects the second wave of art and technology that is very much less about artists and yeah. engineers and is more about like engineers and designers and the eventual commercialization of whatever is being produced at that particular yeah. nexus. Negroponte is very clear in his memos to the MIT administration that he's not interested in art. You know, it's something <laughs> artistic. Yeah, you know, if something artistic right. gets done, that's great, but that's not his focus. I mean, he yeah. literally draws the distinction between himself and his colleagues and the clean, precise, orderly worlds in which they work versus this messy world of the artist that he really doesn't want to have any part of. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the media lab of the early, you know, the 21st century with Jeffrey Epstein and all that. But right. that's, that's a different part, of the, different part of the story. But it's certainly something I had to be cognizant of Absolutely. in writing about. So I wanted to draw this line about commercialization forward a bit. I, I liked your conclusion a lot. It, it really is. An, it's, it kind of serves as an epilogue and kind of just touches on a bunch of themes you explore and, and draws it forward. And one of the threads you you talk about is people who advocate that we should broaden STEM education, which is science, technology, engineering, and math, 
to STEAM, which is science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And then you can add, you know, you can add the hum humanities and make STEAM or whatever. Um, I remember you attended some STEAM conference, and I think it was in Washington, D.C. And what I, what I remember in particular is like wave after wave of kind of like snarky tweet coming out of you as you're kind of bludgeoned to death with jargon and like so many acronyms. And you know, this is something you write about in the in the conclusion is that it goes from being this kind of bottom up movement, very focused on artists, right, and, and art to uh, often, you know, a kind of top down corporate um, push led by business leaders and, and university administrators. So, you know, like what what happened? Do you do you see that like, you know, as a historian, we're often very focused on contingency and how things could have yeah. gone other ways. But like. You know, you can also look back into the 60s and see the kind of the very real kind of possibility of this of this history arising. So, yeah. How do you how do you see that that transformation? Yeah. I mean, so I think like for me, the key like a key takeaway from the book is that these this enthusiasm for art and technology, you know, it's always there at a baseline level, but it certainly has these surges and, you know, I write about one of them in the 60s and 70s. I write about a second one that is sort of, you know, uh, that the Media Lab exemplifies in the 80s going up to the end of the dot-com boom. And then I write about this third one that, you know, again, prior to COVID, I felt that we were in the middle of, which really began to kind of emerge around 2008, what have you. But this also happens at the same time that you have the Great Recession in 2008. And of yeah. course, you know, the huge torpedo that the humanities seem to be taking amidships of like, you know, well, what's mm -hmm. going to happen as we all sort of were concerned about, you know, the decline of humanities majors and the shutting down of departments at, you know, less fortunate institutions and things like that. Yep. And then you kind of have this stem to steam movement kind of bubbling up out of that at about the same time. And you sort of, at least as I saw it, and again, I, I have to be very careful here to sort yeah. of, you know, there's me as a historian, but there's also me as a former engineer, but there's yeah. also me as a professor in a history department. So, like, I've, I'm never really sure, like, which which hat yeah. I'm wearing, like, you know, fully on my head. But, you know, as, as someone who is a professor in a history department, I would sort of look at all this and be a little skeptical because I'm kind of like, well, I'm not really sure how this STEM, this team is like helping the humanities it sort of feels like yeah. we're kind of being thrown this lifeline where we can kind of partner with the stem fields and sort of demonstrate our relevance yeah rather than like the 1960s version of art and technology where you know both the artists and the engineers wanted to get something out of it but at least for people like billy kluver they saw the primary beneficiary as the art community yeah. Hoover was very clear. He's like, look, science and engineering has funded out the wazoo. Artists yeah. get nothing. And this is a way of helping artists get access to technology, resources and patronage and mm -hmm. things like that. So, you know, when I see these like stem to steam sorts of things, which by and large seem to be largely top down initiatives. Yeah. But they also seem to be like largely alienated from the art community. Like yep. if you look through like art in America or art forum or any of these yeah. other like major art journals, they're not writing about STEM to steam. Like, no. doesn't really, it's not on their radar. So you're kind of like, well, who is this serving? Who's a benefiting? Yep. And you know, it starts to feel a little bit like administrators leading the charge here on this sort of thing. 
yeah. which, you know, we can all be skeptical and make funny comments about, but it, it definitely sort of feels this a, a, sort of this attempt to like demonstrate maybe to the parents of like potential humanities students yeah. that their dollars aren't going to be wasted yeah. if, you know, little Timmy goes off and like gets an art degree or something like, well, yeah, yeah but he can work with engineers and learn to code like, well, yep. you know, okay. Yeah. So I mean, there, there's that. Uh, I mean, it's, it, what you're describing definitely is exactly how it's played out here at Virginia Tech, to my understanding. I mean, it's been administrator led. There's a STEAM unit, but no one hates the STEAM unit as much as like the performing artists and visual artists who like just feel like yeah. it's awful. So, yeah, fascinating. Uh, you know, what do you, I, yeah, go ahead. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's awful in, I mean, you know, I, I guess... Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm happy to see, like, you know, in this day and age, like any support for any university initiative that doesn't involve hiring another associate dean, I'm all in favor of. <laughs> yeah, but right, you know, but I, I guess I, I, I just sort of I, I feel somewhat skeptical about it. And then as I write in the book, yeah. you know, I had a number of conversations and sort of anecdotal evidence that I collected that you know, just kind of led me to believe that it really wasn't the artists who were imagined as being the primary community that would benefit from mm -hmm. this. So oh, definitely and, not. It's all about commercialization as you, as you write. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's, again, that's another sort of facet that I write about in the book was, you know, when you had this second wave of art and technology with the media lab and then the dot-com boom and all that, you know, commercialization was a huge part of that. And, yeah. you know, that's not necessarily like a bad thing, but if, it, if that's the only thing that is coming out of these partnerships yeah. right then you kind of have to like ask some questions and i don't want to say like all art has to be like political but i'm not really sure as i look at some of the stuff that comes out of these stem to steam initiatives like what any sort of larger social message is that is mm -hmm. you know again but i don't want to i don't want to like pardon the pun paint the whole thing with too broad of a brush but no. this is based on I'm observing. Yeah. And, you know, to be clear, there are still great artists doing work at the interface of art and technology and, and doing oh, stuff about sure. technology. Yeah, and, yeah. and you write about that in the book, like Paglin, Trevor Paglin's in there. And, you know, yeah. so um, we're not, yeah. you know, we're not trying to caricature the whole picture. Um, what are you working yeah. on now, man? What's next? Yeah. Um, so I definitely have some, you know, what I call orphan projects that are left over from the art and technology book. Yeah. Um, as, as I write about the very end, in the very last pages of the book, um, as I was finishing it up, the Getty announced that it has. Um, so the, the Getty has these um, what they call Pacific Standard Time program, and they're launching their third initiative. So their first one was basically just about art in Los Angeles after World War II, and you know, these are very large programs that the Getty initiates and funds. So they they did that. I want to say that was their. 2015 ish somewhere in there um probably earlier than that but then they did a follow-up to that which was uh, called la slash la and it was los angeles in latin america and it was looking at the dialogue between nice. artists in los angeles and their counterparts in in latin american countries and then for the third initiative um which is supposed to debut in 2024 all things remaining equal they decided that the focus was going to be on art and science, which has come to mean art and science and engineering and everything else, yeah, but it's just right, right. art and science. So I'm involved with a couple of projects um, that are connected with institutions in Southern California 
um, that, that, that are funded by this Getty initiative. So that's, you know, some mm -hmm. smaller scale sorts of things. And then I'm, I'm hoping at some point to write another book. Um, I have a contract to write a new book for MIT Press, which is about uh, the history of computing as seen through uh, sort of in, sort of a eclectic uh, collection of books about computing. Mm -hmm. So as I say, it's a book about books about computing. Mm -hmm. It sounds very meta, but the overall point of the book is basically how does a new technology become known? How does it become popularized? Mm -hmm. How does it become pervasive? How does it become sexy? And the argument that the book will make is one of the pathways, not the only pathway, but one of them is through books. Mm -hmm. And that we can use certain books as lenses or windows, if you will, into this 50 or 60 year you know, trajectory of the history of computing. Yeah. Um, so it's something I've been working on. It's you know, coming along slowly because obviously getting access to archives these days is, is challenging. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not in a particular hurry to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'll, I'll do it when it happens. But, you know, at this point, you know, I'm trying to just remain healthy and uh, hope that we don't devolve to a situation where we have to start eating squirrels. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm already uh, enjoying some of the things you're finding in the new project about like the the rise of tech journalists and stuff. So I'm really looking forward to you to you. Uh, yeah, drawing that's been fun. I mean, I could I could see that becoming like an own like a standalone paper or something. Yeah. But again, it's this whole question of you know today we have these people who are tech reporters, and that's that's the thing that you know they'll their their beat will be like one company, like they're yeah. the Facebook person at the New York Times, and it's like well you have to ask that question, like well. Where did this community, again, going back to what we started talking about originally, yeah. of journalists and writers, how did it sort of form and evolve and develop over time? In many ways, kind of, you know, a spur or a thread, if you will, off of the people who were like traditional business reporters. And at some point, you sort of had a mutant strain evolve that basically wrote about technology and focused on you know, what was starting to be called Silicon Valley. So, you know, that'll, that'll probably be one of the chapters of the book. Um, but, you know, there'll be others. It's great, man. I'm looking forward to it. Patrick, thanks so much for coming on and talking to me today. You're very welcome, Lee. Thanks for inviting me. And I hope your listeners got something useful from this. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out our work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities, teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Ford is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks. <laughs>